Good morning, Life Church. You can be seated. How are you doing this morning? Good. Awesome. Well, my name is Mason. I am one of the pastors on staff here at Life Church. A couple weeks, at sta- a couple weeks ago at staff meeting, um, everyone realized how much of a young uh, baby I am as a pastor. We were talking about how, somehow the topic of our ages came up. And when I told everyone how old I was, they just were like, oh, how young I am. Um, but I hold on to the verse in First Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So I am thankful to be here today. Um, my wife, uh, Taylor, and I, we have been married for two years and four months, which has been incredible. Um, in those two years, in those two years, we've had a lot of firsts. Uh, one of the big firsts happened last year when we decided we were going to buy our first home together. Anyone in here ever bought a home before? If you have, you know that it is maybe the most stressful process of your entire life. Um, I don't, many sleepless nights um, through that process of looking at houses, of going through all the things that we were going through. Um, but something that you need to know when you're buying a house is you need to know what you believe is most important in a house. And that's different for everybody, right? For some people, they believe that the money part is the most important. They're like, I'm going to get the best uh, dollar per square foot. That's the house that I'm going to buy. For some people, it's functionality. Does it have a kitchen? Does it have a second bathroom? All the bedrooms and closets that I need. For some, it's the style and the aesthetics. Chris, do you need me to move this a little bit? I feel like back. Okay, back. Maybe that'll help. For some people, it's aesthetics, and I love, I love you style people. When they look at a house, they're like, I need a house with some character. I need this house to tell me a story. I need this house to feel like a home. Uh, for other people, they're like, does it have a shop and a backyard that I can mow? Then I'm good. That's all I need. But when you're looking for a house, you need to know what you believe is most important. So for Taylor and I, we weren't exactly on the same page. We have some different beliefs and values when it comes to finding a house. And when we found the house that we live in now, it's literally perfect in every way. But I am a a functional type of person. Our house doesn't have great closets. And literally a day before we were gonna put an offer on it, I'm like, "Ah, I'm not sure. It doesn't have great closets. And my wife was like, you're stupid. We're buying this house. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. And it was the best decision uh, we made. Um, We're so thankful for it. So our beliefs crashed a little bit, but God worked it out. It was great. The point of talking about all that is today I want to talk about our, our beliefs. Now, our beliefs are what we believe to be true. Our beliefs are what we believe to be true. And our beliefs are so important. They inform all of our decisions, how we see the world and how we live our lives. So, you know, one way that we, our beliefs can be affected is what you believe about food. There are those of us that believe that food is for enjoyment. Where are you at? My people, I believe food is for enjoyment. So when I go to a restaurant, I'm thinking bacon cheeseburger, bacon cheeseburger, because food is for enjoyment. That's what I believe. But then you have these incredible people that are like, no, food is for fuel. So while I'm ordering my bacon cheeseburger, they're, or, they're ordering a salad with light or no dressing and just making me feel like I'm a bad person. But our beliefs, our beliefs inform our choices. They, be, they inform the decisions we make, how we see our world. We also have core beliefs. So whenever we have a decision to make or we're looking at an issue, there can be multiple beliefs at play inside of us. And our core beliefs are the beliefs that win out. 
when there's a decision to be made. So we all have core beliefs. One more thing about beliefs is that our beliefs are formed by our faith from reading scriptures and our own experiences with God. And I would say, if you are a follower of Jesus, then your core beliefs are probably most definitely formed by who you believe God to be, how you live your life, the decisions you make, how you even see our world is most greatly influenced by who you understand God to be. So we have been in the book of Jonah for the last few weeks Um, I have loved this series. A few months ago, Roger popped into my office. He's like, hey, I'm thinking about preaching on Jonah. I'm like, let's go. I love the book of Jonah. And I am so glad to um, get to speak um, within this series. But just a quick overview. I know many of you know we've been talking about it, but just a quick overview of the book. So God asks Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh and to give them a message, pronouncing judgment on them. Jonah isn't having it. He jumps on a boat. And he goes as far away from Nineveh in the known world as he possibly can. While he's on that boat, God sends a storm. The crew realizes that it's Jonah's fault that the storm has come. They toss him off the boat. He gets swallowed by a whale. He's in the whale for three days. The whale spits him up on the beach. And God says again, Jonah, go give the people of Nineveh the message that I've given to you. And and Jonah's like, okay, God, I'll do it. Goes to Nineveh, and that's where we landed last week. Jonah gets to the city of Nineveh, and he pronounces the judgment that God gave him. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The Ninevites, they hear this message, and chapter three says, from the greatest to the least, from the king, the top of the food chain, to the bottom of the food chain, the city repents. They begin to pray. They ask God to spare them, to forgive them. But it it says not only do they repent in this emotional response, but they also repent in their action. It says that they cease to do their acts of evil and wickedness. This is a, a holistic, true repentance that the Ninevites are showing. Seeing this, God's heart is moved, and he decides not to destroy the city, to relent, to forgive. And that's where we land this week. Um, in Jonah chapter four. And if you will, I'm gonna read um, the passage again, Jonah four, one through four. It says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Will you pray with me for a moment? Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place, in every heart. Lord, may you become greater. May, may I, may we become less. Open our hearts for what you have to say. We just want you, Lord. Amen. So, this passage reveals a major plot point in the story of Jonah. In the first chapter, we see Jonah runs away, but we don't necessarily understand the motivation. And in in this passage in chapter four, it's revealed why Jonah ran away. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. So we learn that Jonah ran away because he was worried God would forgive the Ninevites. 
He was worried that God would forgive. So worried and so angry is he that in verse three, as Doug was talking about a little earlier, this dramaticism, just kill me now, Lord. Kill me, Lord. I'd rather be dead than live in a world where, where you would forgive these people. This is the attitude. This is the message that Jonah's giving to God. I'd rather be dead than this be true of you, Lord, that you would forgive these people. In fact, in next week's passage, you'll see that Jonah will go sit outside the city, watching, waiting, and hoping that God would just turn around on what he had told Jonah he would do and actually destroy the city. This is how uh, sure Jonah is that this is what should happen. This is how badly Jonah desires that God would destroy the Ninevites. That even when God says, I won't do it, Jonah sits outside the city waiting for maybe, God to, for, maybe for God to change his mind. In this story, Jonah was forcing his beliefs on God. Jonah was forcing his beliefs on God. He saw what, who the Ninevites were. He saw their, their deeds. He saw the terrible things that they did. He saw who they were, and he decided what he knew they deserved. Jonah believed they d- deserved death and destruction, and he needed, he believed, he forced his belief on God, that this is what God should do. I believe this is what should happen. God, this is what you're supposed to do. This is the justice these people deserve. So many of us, we look at Jonah being maybe a little dramatic. We look at how severe his reaction is to God relenting, to God not destroying the people of Nineveh. And we distance ourselves from relating that's not me, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't throw a fit like that. If God told me that was what he was gonna do, I'd be like, okay, Lord, whatever you say. That's not me. Church, but it is. We've all been Jonah at one time or another. We have all forced our beliefs on God, all of us. You might say, but I'm a Christian, I I follow God, I read my Bible, I I pray every day, so isn't what I believe, isn't that in line with God? Church, our enemy Satan is very real, and I believe that one of our enemy Satan's greatest traps and schemes against us as followers of Jesus is this. The enemy wants to twist your heart to be against people. The enemy wants you, follower of Jesus, not to be for people, but to be against them. Our enemy, Satan, also wants to twist what you believe is core to who God is, to focus on the wrong things and to miss out on the main things about what really matters about who God is. And lastly, he wants to then convince you that in being against people and having a twisted view of God, that you're living in the truth. I believe this is one of the, the Satan's uh, most effective schemes against the church. And we've been seeing it play out in the last year and a half. While I can't preach on every twisting and, and misbelief, I do want to hit on a few beliefs that we force on God that I believe pull us away from God's heart for us. So the first belief I see us forcing on God or just the church or people in general is this belief that God is cruel. I think it's easy for us to come to this conclusion maybe that God is cruel. 
And I feel like we come to this conclusion as we try to deal with suffering in our, in our own lives and suffering in our world. God is cruel. Maybe you've experienced setback after setback, loss, grief. Feels like not a single thing in your life is going right. And you come to this place that Jonah was at. God, why do you hate me? God, just kill me now. We've all had those days where it, it can't even be coincidental, coincidental how, many time, how many things go wrong after another. Anyone had a day like that? Where it's just like nothing is going right. When it's beyond that kind of coincidence, we just are like, this has to be you, God. What are you trying to say? What do you have against me? We've all been there. We also can come to this conclusion that God is cruel by seeing this, maybe the suffering in the world around us, seeing children die of hunger, poverty, human trafficking, homelessness, refugees stranded, orphans all over the world, abuse, people so brutally treated, suffering so greatly, and we have that age-old question, how could a good God allow this to happen? Come to this belief that God is cruel. Well, what is true then? If God isn't cruel, then what is true? What we need to understand is God is not the creator of evil and suffering. God is not the creator of evil and suffering. When God created the world in Genesis 1:31, he looked at all that he had made and God saw, it says, God saw all that he had made and said that it was good. A world with no suffering, no pain, no tears, and perfect connection and relationship and access to God. All things were right. Everything was perfect. The utopia that, that philosophers have talked about for so long was in the garden when God created all things. Everything was good and perfect. And we had a perfect relationship and connection with God. But we all know the story. Sin entered the world through human action and selfishness. We thought we knew better. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Church, sin broke our world. Sin brought suffering, pain, injustice, and cruelty. If you're looking for the source of suffering in our world and in our own lives, it's a result of sin and not always yours. We live in a, a world that is broken by sin and selfishness and evil. So the brokenness and the pain and the suffering we experience and that others experience is just a result of sin existing in our world. But since the fall, since the beginning, since sin came into the world, we need to realize that God has been working to reconcile us back to him, to reconnect us to relationship with him, which he accomplished by coming in flesh as Jesus Christ dying on the cross and making us right with him. He reconnected us to relationship with him. And when we read the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, we get this picture of when Jesus returns, he wants to bring us back to the garden, to end the suffering, to end the pain, no more tears, perfect reconnected relationship with God. God, his heart hurts with you in your suffering. In Psalm 34, 18, it says, God is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. So through Jesus, God has, re or God has reconnected us to relationship with him. But until Jesus returns, 
we live in this, this, this dichotomy where we do have rec- a reconnected relationship with God and God is working and healing and moving and, and putting broken things back together. But we still have to walk with suffering until Jesus returns. But there's this, that beautiful psalm that God is close to us in our suffering. He is near the brokenhearted. This, all I can see is a picture of a God who is good. A God who is not only against suffering, but fighting against it, seeking to end it and make all things right. God is not cruel. God is good. Another belief that I see as forcing on God, and in your notes it says blessing, but I I made an adjustment, and this is on me. Um, Another belief we force on God is that prosperity is a sign of righteousness, suffering a sign of sin. Prosperity is a sign of righteousness, suffering a sign of sin. I think it's inherent in us as as humans and as Americans to believe that blessing comes from working hard and doing things right. It's the American dream, it's this belief system that here in America, if if you work hard and you have good ideas and you make all the right choices, that the opportunity's there for you to prosper, for you to succeed. This is the belief. In this belief system, our concept of prosperity and blessing is directly tied to our decision-making. If you, if you make good decisions, you will prosper. This is the, the underlying belief. And because of these influences, when we try to understand the blessed life that God promises us, we begin to believe that a person's life circumstances, their blessing is directly tied to the choices they've made and how hard that they've worked. And what happens is, is when we force this belief on God, not only do we assume that the prosperous follower of God is righteous and right with God, but we assume that the, the follower of God who is suffering, who is struggling in their family, financially, in their job, personally, we begin to ask the question, what are you doing wrong? What sin did you commit to suffer as you are? Because of this idea, if you did everything right, everything would be good. Isn't that the promise? Church, this is a very damaging belief to believe that suffering is a sign of, of sin or wrongdoing. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says, for he, God, gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus disconnects this idea that great circumstances are connected to God's blessing. God loves and blesses those who don't love him back. The sun shines and the rain falls on both the just and the unjust alike. Jesus says this in the context of love your enemies, and he's making this point that God loves those who don't even love him back, that he offers prosperity and blessing in great circumstances even to those who aren't right with God. In Luke 6, 20 through 22, we get a statement of the Beatitudes, Jesus saying, God blesses you who are poor. God blesses you who are hungry now. God blesses you who weep now. What blessings await you when people hate you, exclude you, mock you, and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? Jesus turns our concept of blessing on its head. Whenever I see people on Instagram posting, hashtag blessed, it's usually because things are going well. 
It's usually because they got their new job or their life is going great and all the circumstances are just awesome. But then we get the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor, who are hungry, who weep. See, the thing is, last week, uh, we heard the message that Jesus loves losers. Wasn't that good? Thankful for that. As I was uh, pondering that statement, I was reminded of a story um, in Matthew where Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector to follow him. And then Matthew invites Jesus over to have dinner with, with tax collectors and other sinners. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they see Jesus doing this and they're like, why is Jesus eating with such scum? And Jesus hears their words and he discerns their hearts. And he says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, Jesus says, I have come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Jesus loves losers. But the reality is, is that in that statement where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the point that is being made is that we're all losers, whether we realize it or not. You're, only, you're deceived if you think you're righteous. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. There is nothing you or I could do, no uh, number of right choices that we can make to make ourselves right with God. We are all sinners. We can't get away from it. You cannot be right with God on your own. And so in the Beatitudes, what the, I think the point that Jesus is making is that blessed are those who know they need me. Blessed are those who know they need God. John 16, Jesus says, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus promises suffering as a result of following him. He calls us to join him in his suffering. Earlier I said that seeing suffering as a sign of sin is an extremely uh, damaging belief because it denies the truth of what Jesus has called all of us to that we are going to experience suffering, that both prosperity and suffering come on the just and on the unjust, that our view of suffering actually produces a heart and a, and a posture that points us to our, our real need for God that exists whether we can see it or not. And when we see suffering as a sign of sin, and we're looking at our neighbor or we're looking at the person in the pew next to us and we see them struggling and we automatically go, what did you do wrong? I'm gonna pick apart your life and decisions and show you what you've done wrong. That's altered to the truth that we're just reading. We live in a broken world where suffering exists. Yes, choices have consequences, but suffering is impersonal. It's part of our existence. When we go to someone and say, you're suffering because of what you did wrong. Because I'm gonna find whatever you did wrong and God's punishing you because you did something wrong. That is not what God's word is, what I'm seeing. And when we do that, we, we just send them right out the door. And what does that tell them about, and how does that form their own belief about who God is? That, there's a, that God is cruel. When we see suffering in our world, in our neighbor, the person next to us in the pew, God has called us like he does to, draw, to be near to the brokenhearted, to bring comfort, to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, to understand that suffering is just the reality of our world and that as Christians, we are here to love. 
We are here to be a, a shoulder to lean on, to help when people are hurting. We don't withhold our help or our love simply because someone's made a wrong decision. Because if we were treated that way, then we would be left out to dry too. The last belief I see us forcing on God is that God's justice works this way. And when we say God's justice works this way, what I really mean is God justice work my way. God's justice works my way. There's a, a picture that is gonna be put up on the screen. This is something I saw on um, social media recently. Why is Narcan free to a dope addict, but my insulin is $750 a month? So Narcan is a life-saving drug um, to someone who's overdosed. Insulin, obviously, a life-saving drug for someone who's a diabetic. This type of argument I have seen time and time again on social media over the last year or so. It pulls at ideas of justice and fairness. It sucks us in of like, well, that's not fair. It's free for the, the drug addict, but it's, it's so much for the person with, who's a diabetic who may not have done anything wrong to need that kind of life-saving medicine. It sucks us in. It kind of starts to make sense. But the underlying message of that statement is that drug addicts are no good, that they deserve the consequences of their actions and that you ought to just let them die, that their life is less valuable because of the choices that they've made. As, as we try to understand the issues we see in our world, sometimes we get sucked into pronouncing judgment and justice on people. If they've done something wrong, they get what's coming to them. We look for reasons why someone deserves their circumstances and how to cope with what happened. And we start to pronounce judgment. Last year, there was a young man named Ahmaud Arbery. Maybe you've heard the story. A young black man jogging through a neighborhood. But because he looked suspicious, there were a couple of civilians that came and they shot him down. And in the, in the, the storm of media that followed on social media, on TV and the news channels, there were these arguments being made and these details being brought up of people saying, look at, he was, he was a, a criminal. He was arrested before. Here's some of his record and his past. But all that someone is trying to do, they were doing when they were making that argument was saying, look, he was a criminal. Even if he didn't do anything wrong in this situation, so good riddance, I guess. The last few weeks, I've seen a, a message going around or a, an argument going around saying that unvaccinated individuals shouldn't go to the hospital because they made their choice. This idea that, well, they made their choice, so their life is, you know, let them experience the consequences of their actions. The thing is, is that I vehemently disagree with these arguments, but I've gotten sucked into them myself because we've all had it ingrained in us, consequences of actions, right? But it was really interesting to see people react to these arguments. On one side, Man, Ahmad's life was valuable. He didn't deserve that. He deserved life. He didn't deserve to be treated that way. 
On the other side of the unvaccinated argument, man, it doesn't matter what choices they've made. Everyone's life is valuable. They should receive treatment. There's a way that everyone can see that all human life is absolutely valuable. You can see it on all the different sides of the political spectrum. People come to that conclusion. Every life is valuable, that he doesn't deserve to be treated that way, that everyone deserves to receive medical treatment. Everyone's life is valuable. We all come to that conclusion. But then we have these blind spots, these topics, people, issues, that, it, that when we see someone going through a certain issue, our compassion and our empathy and our understanding that life is valuable and, digni- and dignified goes out the window. It just leaves and our compassion leaves, but we have it for someone else. We can all see it's valuable, but when we, for- we, we then force our beliefs on God about what justice someone deserves based on how we see it. God, this is how I see justice. This is how this should go for this person who did, made this choice. So this must be the way God feels about it. And this is what we all do. And this is what Jonah did. This is exactly what Jonah did. He saw the Ninevites and their actions and, and all that they did. And he decided in his heart, this is what they deserve. And I can't live in a world where they don't get what they deserve. And he forced his belief on God. God, this is who you're supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to do. And yet God did not destroy, accepts their repentance, showed compassion, love, and mercy to the people in Jonah's blind spot. Worship team, you can come up. At the beginning of this sermon, we talked about beliefs and core beliefs. Our core beliefs being the beliefs that went out when we have a decision or an issue. And there's multiple beliefs at play. Our core beliefs went out. Now, while God doesn't have beliefs, because beliefs, we said, are what we believe to be true, and God is truth. God is truth. But of all that is true about the characteristics of God, there is a core to who God is. There is something central to the person of God. In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. Church, love is at the center of God's heart. Love is at the center of who God is. And core to God's love is this, as James puts it in James 2.13, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In God's justice system, he looks at all people and he looks at our sin. We know that God is love, that God is all powerful, that God is all knowing. We also know that God is perfectly just. And in God's justice, as he looks at our sin, he has an obligation to justly Judge it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But in God's justice system, because of his great love for us, because love is the core of who God is, God literally rigged the system so that love and mercy would triumph in every life. No matter how grave their sin, God, we can be counted right with God as sons and daughters of God. Church, be reminded today what it means to faithfully look at, perceive, and interact with our world. Every person is created in the image of God. Every person inherently valuable, absolutely loved by God, deserving of dignity and of life and of care, capable of being forgiven and made right with God, period. 
no matter what they've done. So as you look at our world, as you look at the issues going on, as you look at the godlessness of our world, we get to this place where we just let them go. They are what they are. We, we pronounce judgment. We say, God, have your way with them. But God is love. His mercy triumphs over judgment. There's no one too far away. Nothing you, that you can do that can remove God's heart of love for you and for every person. And as you perceive your world, look at your heart. Don't remove your compassion. Don't remove your ability to see that they are still created in God's image, that they are worthy of life and love and dignity. Yes, we know they need the Father, but they're still valuable when they don't know that. My challenge to you is this. Question, who are your Ninevites? All of us have people and issues that we can't stand. People that as they've made these type of decisions and mistakes, our compassion for them goes out the window. We cannot see them in the light of God's love. And a lot of times these feelings come from our deepest pain, whether it be divorce, addiction, abuse, things that have hurt us and caused us suffering and pain and struggle. So often it's hard to see people who have made those kind of choices and mistakes with any kind of compassion. There are other issues in our world that we get righteously angry about. But my question is, who is your Ninevites? Who do you struggle to see in the light of God's love as valuable and created in his image? And what my challenge to you is this, download God's heart. Church, download God's heart. We need to start seeing the world, people, our neighbors, with God's eyes and with God's heart. I love um, in, our, in the story today, you know, God tells Jonah to give this message to the people that, the, that he's gonna destroy Nineveh, but from the beginning, Jonah knew, as it says in verse two, you are eager to turn back from destroying people. The plan the whole time was to give them an opportunity to get right with God. It's an opportunity to get right with God. And for us, while we may know that the path a person is going on, the, their misbeliefs and their struggles, as we see it, we know that that leads to death, but that doesn't remove the fact that they are still worthy of love and life, that, that God is still the God of the prodigal who's running after them with arms wide open. There's nothing that they can do to make him love, to make God love them any more or less. He loves them unconditionally as they are. And so as you download that heart, as you begin to see your Ninevites in the light of God's love and value, how does that change the way that you interact with them? I think there are many people in our world looking to the church just wanting them to say, wanting us to say, you matter. You're valuable as you are. You're loved as you are. We know that they need to change, but what they need to know is that God loves them. And if we can live out that heart, 
I love this uh, phrase, belong, believe, become. In the church, a lot of times we want people to become a Christian, to act like a Christian, and then they'll believe, and then they'll belong. But that's not the model that Jesus showed for us. Man, Jesus showed value. He loved them, he was with them. He wasn't scared away by them. He showed them that he was there, that they belonged regardless. And upon seeing that unbelievable, magnificent, unconditional, world-changing love, that was where the transformation came from. Let's download God's heart today. Church, if you'll stand, we're gonna go into a time of worship. Um, There are blank index cards in the seat back in front of you by the communication card. So we're doing a new service order here at Life Church. So our, we're, we're gonna be doing a, an extended worship response time at the end of service. And what we wanna do is create an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak to our congregation through gifts, uh, words of knowledge and wisdom. So what that card in your seat back is for is if you feel like God or the Holy Spirit speaks to you and gives you a message for the church, then what you're gonna do is write on that card the message that God has given you And then there's going to be um, someone in the back with a lanyard on who will collect those cards and they will discern what messages need to be spoken. But it simply is just an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak to us directly, to call us to respond in whatever way. So if you feel God speaking to you, please take advantage of that. With that, if you will bow your heads, let's pray as we go into worship. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict our hearts. God, that you would teach us how to love the world around us. God, to stop seeing with a a, a judgmental heart and see it with a heart of love and of value in every person, no matter what. Lord, download your heart in us. May we stop being a people that know what we are against Lord, and may we be a people that know what we are for, that we are for love, that we are for transformation, that we are for even the people who have made mistakes, God, we will stand alongside them and show them your love and and, and express love to them through kindness, through support. God, may we be a church that loves the world as radically as you do. We love you, we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.